Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, our text is verse 7 tonight. Now, that doesn't mean that next week it will be just verse 8. But I wanted to complete a thought here that we began last week in verse 6. The verse that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But now we add to it verse 7 that says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore, or even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, we have the privilege as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of looking at the scriptures with hindsight for the most part, except for Jesus' second coming. But for the Jews, they did not see the first two comings of Messiah. And many times, His first and second comings were placed side by side. As we see here in these two verses. You see, there was a mystery. There was a mystery between Christ's first and his second coming, and we call it the church age. That is the mystery. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and it says there, and actually I'm going to add verse 7. I originally said verses 1 through 6, but now I want to add one more verse. But Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Now remember that Paul was a Jew. But he truly believed with all his heart. And of course he was anointed and blessed to go forth and to minister to the Gentiles. But you remember that Paul would always go into a city and he would always go to the synagogue first. But nonetheless, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery... And there is that word again, musterion in the Greek. As I have briefly written already, he says, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And notice verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, New Testament as it were, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. And so the church age was a mystery to the Old Testament saints. In other words, what lay be between the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment? There was a tremendous gap. You can stand looking at two mountain peaks, and if they kind of line up together, you would almost say that they're side by side. But down between them is a valley. Down between them is something that you cannot see from where you are. And this is made very clear to us that the church aid was indeed a mystery 
to the Old Testament saints. It was a mystery until Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveals it to us. If you read on a couple of more verses in Ephesians, if you're still there, and I hope you are, this is what Paul goes on to say. Notice in verse 8 he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And don't think that just to the Ephesian church does he mention the mystery, but even to the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. For here in verses 26 and 27, Paul says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. To them God willed, to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. That's the mystery. Jesus Christ, the head of the church. The church, the body of Christ, being led and guided and directed by the Word of God by the head who is Jesus Christ Himself, the Word, the Logos, made flesh. This is the mystery here. So they they didn't know what to do, you see, with the Messiah who was a suffering servant and one who was to rule from the throne of David. They could not perceive, they could not understand the fact that a suffering servant had to go through what he had to go through because of their sin. And then he's to rule on the throne of David. Confusing to the Jews. It was difficult for them to see this. And so therefore in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2 we see the first coming of Jesus spoken of here. Verses 1 and 2. Talking about the light that is to come because of the gloom that had had, uh, grown because of the sin that had transpired. And, of course, in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them. A light has shined. So in verses 1 and 2, we see the first coming of Jesus. Also in the beginning of verse 6, as we saw last time, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. How directly related to the first coming of Jesus are those verses. And then in verse, or that verse, and then in verses 3 through 5, and the latter part of verse 6 and into verse 7, we see His second coming being spoken of. The millennial reign of Messiah, when He will rule the nations, He'll rule the nations from Jerusalem. Look at the text again, verse 7, of the increase of His government there will be no end. And of the increase of his government and peace. I don't want to leave peace out there. That's important. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It is important to note 
that the reign of Messiah will not last just a thousand years. It's easy to say, well, you know, there's the millennial reign of Christ where he, where he rules for a thousand years and, of course, everything else happens. You know, the, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells and all. But it's important to note that the reign of Messiah is not just going to last a thousand years, though the millennium is a special aspect of his reign. But notice that it says, there will be no end. How many of you see that in your, in your Bibles? There will be no end to the reign of Messiah. There will be no end. And he will rule for all eternity. It will continue. There's not going to be any more sin. There will be no more war. There will be no more violence. There will be no more hatred. There will be no more aggression. All of that will be conquered. And to some extent, of course, Jesus has already conquered those things through the death on the cross and His rising from the dead. But this is still a part of the plan that needs to be fulfilled. And so in the midst of another great Old Testament prophecy, that of Daniel, we find this thought reinforced. A prophecy that is coming out of the dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel is interpreting this dream. In Daniel 2.44, notice that he says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. It is an eternal kingdom. It's a hard concept for us to understand, but we need to begin to understand what it means to have an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that will rule and reign forevermore. Or a kingdom in which Christ will rule and reign forevermore. Because all of these other things, all the things that we read from Genesis to Revelation, in particular what we find in the prophecies of the Old Testament leading to their fulfillment in the book of Revelation and any New Testament prophetic passages is the very fact that Jesus is going to come again. And He's going to come again for the very purpose of taking rule and authority in the city of Jerusalem. That is not just symbolism. It is what Jerusalem is preparing for. It is what the Orthodox Jew in Jerusalem is preparing for. Is He coming? Jesus said that He would. Do you believe that? Then, then you know, we ought to get excited about that because He's coming and He could come at any moment and at any time. Certainly He has come for those, our loved ones, who have gone on to be with the Lord through death in this life. And of course the Scripture talks much about death in this life. But if we die in Christ, we don't die. We live on. So we have a hope. And these are hopeful uh, verses that we've been given about the very reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. The Lord God Almighty. To begin to lay a foundation for our understanding of these things said here in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The Lord God Almighty made a covenant with David that His Son should sit upon His throne and reign in righteousness forever. And God does not throw the word forever or the word eternity out there just for the sake of throwing it in there. Kind of like 
When we start dating the love of our life for the moment, right? What do we say to them? At times we may say these words, Oh, I'm going to love you forever. Really? about you, but that forever seems to die when, die when death comes. I don't mean to, you know, make light of it, but, right? That's not so much forever anymore because then after somebody dies, and it's like, who's the next forever? You understand what I'm saying? Trying to draw the picture of how easy it is for some people just to take the word eternity or forever. Or just God does not take that word lightly. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Second Samuel chapter seven. Here's the prophecy, or I should say, here's the here's the covenant. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse twelve. When your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Near fulfillment, who is it? Solomon. Near fulfillment? Right? The son that is chosen to build the temple? Far fulfillment? Mashiach, Messiah, Jesus Christ. Near fulfillment? Far fulfillment? And while this has yet to, be, yet to be fulfilled, we can see how all prophetic pictures are falling into place. You know, the only way that you're going to be able to see those things happen, folks, is if you're into God's Word. Just a little encouragement there. If you really want to know what's going on in the world, it isn't Fox News that's going to give you all the details. They'll give you some. I'm not even going to mention any of the other ones. But I'm just, I'm just going to tell you right now, that's not where you're going to get your information. You're going to get your information from God's Word because God's Word is coming to pass. God's Word is coming to pass in Israel. God's Word is coming to pass in the Middle East. Nations are becoming now identified in the Scriptures and tied into the regions where these things are happening. What is happening in God's Word? It's being fulfilled. And that should tell us again, Jesus Christ is coming soon, so we better do what? We better get ready. We better get ready. When the forerunner of our Lord was born, John the Baptist, son of Zacharias, the father of John made this declaration in Luke chapter 1. It would help us to understand some things if we go back to Luke 1 and, and verses 67 through 69. And notice in verse 67, Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant David. Now I would encourage you, if you will, to read the rest of all that he says there. It's a tremendous passage. I just want to have the time to go through the whole thing. But I wanted to point out the very fact that he is praying in prophecy or in prophetic terms, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Please take note, take to heart what he's saying when he says Israel here. He's not saying that he's praying 
here for the, or, 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 or blessing the Lord God of the church who now replaces Israel. That's not what it says. There is a theology today called replacement theology where people are saying that, you know, there's, there's enough verses of Scripture. Of course, I haven't read them all, but there's enough verses of Scripture to, to say that, you know, that Israel has, has lost its opportunity to be blessed by God and so now it's the church that's going to be blessed by God. That's just not the way it works. As much as God uses the word forever carefully, he also uses his, his prophecies and his prophetic words to say what he means. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. There is a place called Israel. There is a land. There is a city called Jerusalem. And it is what all of these nations are, are aiming at. To possess, to have, to own. But it belongs to God. It belongs to God, the God of Israel, the God of His people. It belongs to Him, and He has given it to them. And there will be, once again, a temple, because God said there would be. How do we spiritualize all of that? When you go to Israel, and I hope we have another opportunity to go before the Lord comes. It is just amazing what you see. It's amazing what you learn. It's amazing what you are, are observing and what you are experiencing. Because the Bible has just come alive around you. This declaration by Zechariah made clear that David's throne was to be established forever and that he should never be without a man to sit upon the throne. Our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, on his mother's side, was from the line of David, as we know, and because of her marriage to Joseph, who was heir to the throne, by the way, and we'll show you how that works here, who was heir to the throne, the right of the throne fell to Jesus. Think about that. We don't oftentimes think of Joseph as an heir to the throne. We just think of him as what? A lowly carpenter. A nice man who took in this woman who was pregnant. And yet God had to reveal to him, hey, it's pregnant for me. (laughs) So don't worry. You go. And I'll take you. Luke chapter 3. There are, two, uh, there are two genealogies, by the way, in the New Testament. One is in Luke chapter 3, and the other is in Matthew. We're going to start in Luke first. Notice it says in Luke 3.23, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed. And notice in parentheses, and so that's put in there so that you can see that this is one of these side thoughts. Being as was supposed, the son of Joseph the son of Heli. Now, that's an interesting little combination because later on in Matthew we realize that the father of Joseph was a man named Jacob. So now there comes a little bit of confusion, but not really, because Mary, the, the, the point of Mary being tied into the line of David would come through her father. And here, many believe that the son of Joseph, uh, the son of Heli should be the son-in-law of Heli. Because he's the man in the family and he's going to carry that particular uh, part of the inheritance or, or the tie to uh, 
the line of David. Notice now, go down to verse 31 and 32. This becomes even a little bit more clear. When it says the son of Malia, the son of Menon, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Nathan, notice the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, and so on and so forth. A bunch of sons there. But notice the son of David as the, I should say the son of Nathan, the son of David. Nathan, the son of David. Interesting. Because when you go to Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, here we're given a genealogy in the right direction, which is from the oldest to the, the newest, whereas in Luke we're given from the newest to the oldest. And we'll see why in just a moment. But here in Matthew 1, verse 5, it says, Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz we remember as a name in the book of Ruth, right? The kinsman redeemer who marries Ruth. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Who is Jesse? The father of David. And Jesse begot David the king. But notice now, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Of course, it has to be mentioned because of what happened then and reminders of, of how and why Jesus came. He came to deal with sin, the sin of men. And this is part in some way of his genealogy. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Azza. Now, go down to verse 16, and you'll notice it says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. So you'll notice the difference. Jacob begot Joseph, so that's meaning this is his real father. Back in Luke, it tells us Joseph, the son of Heli, which could also represent the son-in-law of Heli. So what we're telling you is that there is this bringing together of the person of Jesus Christ into the line of David. And so in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus inherited the legal right to the throne of David through Solomon. As legal son of Joseph, the Lord fulfilled that part of God's covenant with David, which promised him that his throne would continue forever. But Jesus could not have been the real son of Joseph without coming under God's curse on a person named Jeconiah. And you'll find that when you read through Matthew there. Uh, which decreed, by the way, that no descendant of that wicked king would prosper. So listen carefully. Go to Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Here's the curse. Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Thus saith the Lord, write this man down as childless. In other words, Jeconiah's. Write him down as childless. He's not going to be in this line. A man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Ah! Dilemma! Right? Is it? So listen carefully. As the real son of Mary, the real son of Mary, Jesus fulfilled that part of the covenant with God, with David, which promised him that his seed would sit upon his throne forever through Mary and by being descended from David through Nathan he did not come under that curse that curse I should say which was pronounced on Jeconiah so he got around the curse God sure knows how to do things he sure is smart he sure is wise he knows what he's doing with his only begotten son so it seems obvious that the Messianic line would end with Jesus Christ. 
since no one else can ever present valid legal claim to the throne of David. No one else but Jesus from both lines of his family. No one else. By the way, when you read down through the end of the, of the uh, genealogy in Luke chapter 3, it ends with Adam the son of God. And the reason why that genealogy took its direction, if you go back to Matthew, you realize that it began with Abraham because he needed to be tied into the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. And that he was done through Abraham. On the other line, on Mary's line in in Luke chapter 3, we take him all the way back to Adam. Why? Because Jesus didn't come just for the Jews. He also came for the Gentiles all the way back through all of history to tell us that Jesus came to save sinners. Isn't that a wonderful thought? All right. I'm glad you stayed up with me. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Because we're not done nailing this thought that the throne of David will last forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, in speaking to the church of Laodicea, the apostate church, what we may be seeing a lot of in this day and time in which we live, people getting away from the Word of God, people getting away from the things of Jesus Christ. In other words, you know, not wanting to believe that He could have been born of a virgin, not wanting to believe that He had actually died on the cross or even rose again from the dead. An apostate type of belief. Or a belief or, or, or a church apostasy in which they just want to say, listen, you know, you guys are old-fashioned talking about sin. It's okay, we can still love God and, and, and do what we want. That's apostasy. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What fellowship that represents. The other day we were mentioning how much Jesus does around food. <laughs> because it's a, it's a symbol of fellowship. It's a symbol of communion. To be able to share together the same food one with another. And here he's talking about coming in and supping with him and, and he with us. But notice verse 21. To him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Is this not an eternal throne? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It is the same throne that Jesus is talking about. I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The eternal throne. And so now, today, he is sitting now at the right hand of the majesty on high, on the throne of deity, the throne of the Godhead. Soon he will return in glory and will take his own throne, which is really the throne of David, and will reign in righteousness over all the earth. This is another statement being made in verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. Soon he's going to return in glory. He's going to take this throne, and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness over all the earth. And there's a little phrase that we see in this verse of Scripture. It says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Interesting little phrase. 
The host, of course, are the heavenly armies. The Lord of hosts, of course, is God Himself. The zeal of the Lord. Zealous, His jealousness, if you will, for His people is what this is meaning and what it is representing. God's fervent love for His Son and for His people will bring all this to pass. God's fervent love for His Son and for His people. He has not turned Himself away from Israel. He has not turned Himself away from the people that He called to be His people forevermore. There is now another group of people. It's very clear. That other group of people is the church, the body of Christ, made up of Jews and Gentiles. But God is still bringing forth all these prophecies to bring His people through to the very end where He will be ruling them like He always wanted to do. You remember how Jesus... Well, certainly Jesus was there, but do you remember how God Himself would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt takes them out of Egypt and He leads them by, uh, with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. His presence with them. Leading them out there. Providing what they need. Manna in the desert. Water. Uh, you know, the, the Lord just providing everything that they need. And they kept complaining. and Oh my goodness, you know, all this complaining. But He says, hey, I'm, just trust Me. I want to be your God. I want to be your King. I want to be your ruler. I am anyway. <laughs> I made you. And I chose you to be my people. And then what happens later? They get to the promised land. They have the times of the judges and whatnot. A people, a generation is totally away from the things of God. It takes a lot of things to happen to bring the people back to focus on the Lord. Then come the time of the kings. But you see, it began with a thought. We want a king just like all the other nations. We want our own king. So what did God do? So you want your own king. All right. Here's Saul. Was he the best choice? Well, to them, they thought he would be. Why? He was tall. He was rugged. He was, you know, handsome. He, you know, I mean, tall, you know, heads above all these other guys, you know, so they could see him. But he wasn't a very good king. He didn't have his heart committed to God. Sounded at first like he might have. But then he began to usurp his authority. Then he began to go out and do whatever he wanted to do. Actually usurping the authority of the priest. When Samuel had told him, listen, when you get to these people here, you're, you're supposed to take them, kill everything that they've got and kill them, just wipe them out. I'm judging them through you. What did he do? He kept sheep, he kept livestock, and he kept the king, he kept others. He usurped the authority. He did not wait for Samuel to come. When Samuel finally comes, he said to Saul, Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. Because Saul was trying to say, look, we've got these lambs, we've got all these livestock, we're, we're sacrificing to the Lord. He says, obedience is better than sacrifice. So here is, is Saul, that's your king. So what, is now, what, does, what does God want to do for them? Let me show you the kind of king I want you to have. And he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem in Judea, in the Judean wilderness there south of, of Jerusalem in, in, in that particular region this, what would later become called the city of David. And he wants Jesse's sons to parade in front of 
of, of uh, Samuel. Samuel wants them to come because out of this household, God was going to bring out a king. But all these brothers came forth. They kept looking, pretty, pretty good looking, pretty rugged looking, pretty strong looking, pretty smart looking. And, and God says, you know, don't look at the outward. He says, I don't look at the outward. I look at the heart. And Samuel said, you know, there's got to be some more. You got any more? He says, yeah, I do. But he's, you know, he's my youngest son, David. He's out tending sheep. And Samuel says, bring him. We know the rest of the story. David is brought before Samuel. Samuel, knowing in his heart, this is God's choice. David. And there he anoints David with the horn of a ram. Why is that significant? Because if you remember something about the anointing of Saul, when Saul was picked, he wasn't anointed with the horn of a ram. He was anointed with a flask, a man-made thing. Saul was a man-made king. But David was anointed with the horn of a ram. And it was out of that that the oil was poured on David. Why? Because that ram was made by God. This was God's king. You see how important Scripture is. You see how important it is for us to love it, to read it, to study it, to grow in it. Because the stories begin to make sense. The accounts begin to make sense. By the way, this is what the Queen of Sheba said regarding Solomon. And yet how much more fitting are they toward the Messiah? Listen to what she says. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9. She says, Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel, how? Forever. Therefore He made you king to do justice and righteousness. It would have been wonderful if Solomon would have held on to that later in his life. But there was one that it was fitting to say that about, and that was Jesus. Jesus the Mashiach, the Messiah. And when you read what she says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, Mashiach, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever, therefore He made you king to do justice and righteousness. And the next phrase that we want to look at in verse 7 of, of, of Isaiah 9 is of the increase of Christ's government, there will be no end, so that one day it will fill the entire earth. Of the increase of His government, there will be no end. It will just keep on growing, keep on increasing. Isaiah 11, look at verses 5 through 10. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, 5 through 10. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. What are we talking about here? The millennial kingdom. Think about it. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful little phrase? Because in reality, a little child does lead us. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. 
And notice that he goes on to say, the cow and the bear shall graze. Last time, when was the last time you saw a cow and a bear together out there grazing together? Hey, what's happening? You know. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. When was the last time you saw a lion doing that? Vegetarian lion. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full. Notice, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Through David to Jesus, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. By the way, there's a key word here, resting place. Is that not what we're waiting for? A time for us to rest with Jesus eternally. Because of the days in which we live, we have rest in our hearts knowing that he saved us. We have rest in our, in our lives knowing that, that we have salvation eternally through Jesus. But you know, we still live in this, in this earth. We still have to work. We still have to... You know, pay bills, we still have to do a lot of things, but we can do it knowing that the Lord has provided everything that we need through, for life and godliness through Jesus. And similarly, similarly, I should say, of the increase of His peace, there will be no end. The peace of God, the peace of Jesus, the peace of Messiah, for it stretches as far as His government. This is all accomplished sitting on David's throne and ruling His kingdom. Peace. I've mentioned it many times, but when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we surrender our lives to Him, and I mean totally surrender and say, Lord God, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I want to live for You. Give me, grant me, fill me with Your Holy Spirit that I might live my life for Your glory, for Your honor, and for the good of others. Let me live that way for You from here on. I know that I can't do it on my own. It's not for me to do it on my own. I must do it by Your power and might. And the, and, the, and the fact of the matter is that when we do that, the war that we ever had, the, the, the war that, that we, we had in our lives of hostility toward God, hostility toward the things of God, hostility toward the church, hostility toward Christians, hostility toward Jesus, hostility toward the Holy Spirit, just hostility toward anything that is properly and truly spiritual in God and in Christ, that's over. That war has been won because Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and rose from the dead to secure us that eternal life. Peace. You want peace? Then come to Jesus and let him live through you. For I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 And this now brings us back to where, where we were in Isaiah 9 bringing this all back to the current situation for which the prophecy was intended. The great son of David stands in contrast over and against the king of Judah, Ahaz, or Ahaz. 
during those critical times. They, they'll, they'll see through the prophecy that there is a king who is greater than the king that is leading them now. Standing in contrast over and against Ahaz during those critical times. And the apostate representative, by the way, of the royal house. He was an apostate. He didn't believe in the Lord. Going back to Isaiah 7, verses 13 and 14, it says, Then he said, Here now, O house of David, is it a small thing? This is God speaking to the house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Will you weary him? That's what Ahaz was doing. That's what the people were doing. They were wearying God. And therefore, he says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You, you won't ask for a sign as I told you to do it. You're not going to do it, so here's a sign. Let me give it to you. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Folks, the prophecy was too good to be true. Listen to me. The prophecy was too good to be true. Only the zeal of the Lord of the Almighty can accomplish such miracles like He was going to do, like He said He would do. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. What happened 700 years later? It happened exactly as the prophecy said. A virgin conceived and bore a son. And in essence, the name, and we talked about names last time, but names are really the characteristics and the attributes that, that, uh, that represent the God that we serve. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Emmanuel, God with us. God coming to us and being with us. It's too good to be true. And only the zeal, listen, only the zeal of the love of the Almighty God can accomplish such miracles. But there is no doubt it does. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. The beauty in all His rule is that He will govern by God's standards. He will govern. Jesus Christ the Messiah will govern by God's standards. Is that happening today in nations? No. While, may, while some nations might try, there is no perfect nation. There's always corruption. Why? Because men are in flesh. But in Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Notice, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. This is God's standard. And these were all so grossly violated by the rulers of Judah. We've already studied that, so we're not going to go back and look at it again. But Messiah's kingship will bring glory to God and salvation to the people, and so it will endure forever. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. We're almost done. 1 Chronicles 28. This is David's farewell to the people. And notice that it says in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 2 through 5, Then King David rose, and by the way, again, take home this homework and read the rest of what he says. But because of time, I only have a small portion. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house 
for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Remember that Messiah is Prince of Peace. However, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father to be the king or be king over Israel forever. Notice, this is David speaking. For he has chosen Judah to be the ruler and of the house of Judah, the house of my father. And among the sons of my father, he was pleased with me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, notice what he says here. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons. He has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. What will this tell us, though? And what does it tell us right now? What it tells us is this. Earthly kings may fail many times over. Even good kings like David and Solomon. How we have been so weighed down sometimes when we read the things that David did, the things that Solomon did as kings of Judah, actually of Israel. But, but notice again, earthly kings may fail many times over, even good kings, but the kingship of the true son of David, Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, this will be accomplished and will never fail. It will never fail. The throne of David that is filled with Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, will be eternal and it will never fail. This prophecy, what we've studied in the last two weeks, is fulfilled in Him, who in the demonstration of His royal power has overcome the prince of darkness. Was there a battle? Man, there's been a battle from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Think about the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. Have you ever thought about that? you think that God, if he wanted to, could have just created everything and it would have been perfect already. One day, yes, he could have. He chose to create the world in six days. Because there was something going on. Something that had happened in, in, in eternity past with Lucifer, who became the serpent, who became Satan as far as names. Turn, if you will, to Matthew 12. We're almost done. I said that before, didn't I? Well, we're almost done. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 25. Jesus was being challenged by his enemies because they were saying, you know, this Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebub. Notice verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, 
he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do, you, do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely, notice this, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. But verse 28, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the battle that Jesus Christ came to wage for us. Because we cannot wrestle against flesh and blood and win. We cannot wrestle against flesh and blood. uh, uh, I'm sorry, against principalities and powers and win. In and of ourselves. Now, we don't... We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We know that from Ephesians 6. We're not supposed to wrestle because we wrestle against principalities and powers. But we can't defeat those without the armor of God, without Jesus Christ fully in our lives. So this is why he came. This is the mighty God who came to save his people, Israel, and those who come to him, Jew and Gentile. And John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, writes this in, in, in purpose. He says, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That is the war that was waged. That is the war that was won by Jesus Christ for his people on the cross. This purpose, the Son of God, was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And in one sense, he has done that. It is finished, he said, on the cross. But he's coming again, settle all accounts, put everything right, put everything upright, put everything right side up, put everything in its proper place, and then he's going to rule and reign forever. He, Jesus Christ, is now seated on the throne of glory to accomplish the good pleasure of his Father. And one day, he will bring the dawn of a kingdom of peace that will embrace heaven and earth. Is Jesus coming again? If we believe what the Word of God is saying today, and if we look to that place, to that area where Jesus was born, where Jesus was raised, where Jesus fulfilled his public ministry before he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, then you better believe Jesus is coming. And he's coming soon. Let's pray.